0: Good evening. So oh, here we are for our last formal Dharma talk of this retreat. Tomorrow night's going to be more of a celebration ritual, so this is actually the final talk for now. It's the final talk of about 85 Dharma talks for you three-month retreat people. And about 42 or so Dharma talks for the part two people. And that's on top of all the morning reflections and the Brahma Vihara sessions every week. So that's a lot of talks. (laughs) So you might be wondering what else could possibly be said. And because I often do end up giving the last talk of the retreat, I often think the same thing. (laughs) So let's sit together in silence. (laughs) How do you know I'm joking? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. What I do want to do is just acknowledge a couple of things. One is to acknowledge just how diligently every one of you have practiced over the course of this retreat. For me personally, and I think I can speak for my friends on the teaching team too, it's been deeply inspiring just to accompany you on this journey of discovery. So in some ways, I'd like this evening to be a kind of a celebration. Before you get too excited, it'll be a kind of a Buddhist retreat type (laughs) celebration. (laughs) So there won't be any champagne, there won't be any music, there won't be any dancing, there won't be any applause. There'll be quite a bit of silence, but still, it's an opportunity to appreciate some of the many fruits of the hard work that you've all done here. The other thing I'd like to acknowledge is this powerful transition point that we're at now, the transition from intensive meditation practice to practicing in daily life, which for most of you is probably not going to involve hours and hours a day of formal sitting and walking meditation. So this evening, I'd like to come back to a set of teachings that are kind of bridge between these two modes of practice. And these are the teachings on the Ten Parami. So if you remember back to the first evening of part two, Tueri introduced each of us, uh, each of us teachers, in relation to one of these parami qualities that she recognized in us. So in some ways, we're coming full circle now. We're returning to where we started, but from a very different vantage point because of this powerful process that we've all been through. So as you know, the 10 parami are 10 highly skillful qualities of character that support us on this path to freedom. And they naturally arise in the course of intensive retreat practice like this. And they're also qualities that lend themselves to being developed in daily life. I'll say a little more about each of them soon. But first, just a quick run through of what they are. And I like to list them as, and do it as a kind of a short meditation practice. So as you hear what each of the qualities are, just take in any resonance, any reaction, any recognition that comes with each one. For some, there might be a natural sense of, oh yeah, a sense of recognition or even inspiration. For some, there might be, hmm, yeah, neutral. For others, there might even be a slight recoil. Hmm, not sure about that. Whatever your response is, just notice it. Useful information. Okay, so here's what the ten parami are. Generosity or dana, The willingness to give, to share, to receive. <coughs> Ethics or sila. The commitment to non-harming. Renunciation or relinquishment, living a simple life, taking care with resources, wisdom, insight, clear seeing, understanding the truth of how things are, energy or effort, exertion, motivation, Patience, or forbearance, tolerance, endurance. Truthfulness, speaking the truth, acting from integrity, knowing what's true. Resolve and determination, persistence, courage. Metta, kindness, friendliness, goodwill. Equanimity, balance, steadiness, non-reactivity. So these are the ten, and they're usually referred to as the ten perfections. Perfection, the most common translation of that word, parami. I tend to not use that word so much, though, because the term perfection can easily activate that inner tyrant. And that inner tyrant can hear this list of ten things we're, quote, supposed to perfect. as just another list of things, ways that we're not measuring up or not getting it right or not good enough. So as an antidote to that tendency, instead of thinking of the parami as perfections, I prefer to think of this as a process, a process of polishing, polishing what's actually already there. So every one of you already has these ten qualities in your hearts and minds, at least to some extent. You wouldn't have ended up on this retreat, but often we overlook these qualities or we take them for granted, and this is unfortunate. Because we don't appreciate them as the powerful resources that they are, we miss the opportunity to help them to grow and to strengthen. But fortunately, just by paying attention to these qualities, by bringing them to the foreground of our awareness, they become brighter and clearer. And so this is why I think of the parami practice as being about polishing rather than perfection. We can think of these qualities as being ten facets of a beautiful heart-mind. And they're facets that we can polish through this process of bringing awareness to them. So metaphorically, it's a little similar to how we might polish a precious stone or a piece of timber. First, we remove its roughness, and then we keep smoothing it over and over We're paying careful attention to it so that eventually the natural luster of that stone or that timber gets highlighted and its beauty is revealed. That's exactly what we've been doing here on this retreat. So I'd like to reflect back to you some of the many ways that these parami have already been developed and have been strengthened over the past weeks and months. So I want to encourage you to pay attention and to recognize these skillful qualities that are growing in you because then they become powerful inner resources that will support you when you go back into your everyday lives. Now again, it's possible that at this point some of you might be hearing the voice of the inner tyrant, that undermining cynical voice that might try to sabotage this reflection Sabotage this celebration of our beautiful qualities. It might diminish it as some kind of feel-good fluffiness that I just made up to make you all feel good. But this is not a practice that I just made up myself. It's actually one that the Buddha recommended very highly to one of his followers by the name of Mahanama. I don't know if you've heard of this sutta, but apparently Mahanama was a layman who lived in a household that was dusty and crowded with children. So, in other words, he was living an ordinary householder's life. He was not a monastic, and he went to the teacher, he went to the Buddha, and asked the Buddha for teachings that were suitable for a lay person like him. And the Buddha obliged. He said to Mahanama, you should contemplate six different things every day, regularly throughout the whole day, and if you do this, he said, the practice will powerfully deepen. And the six things that Mahanama was asked to contemplate were the good qualities of the Buddha, the good qualities of the Dhamma, the good qualities of the Sangha, and then Mahanama's own good qualities or virtues, his own generosity, and lastly, the good qualities of the Devas or heavenly beings. And what interested me most in this list was the Buddha's instructions to Mahanama that he should recall his own good qualities, his own virtues, his own generosity. He said you should re- recollect your own virtue. When a practitioner recalls their own faith, ethics, learning, generosity and wisdom, their mind is not full of greed, hate and delusion. At that time, their mind is unswerving, based on virtue. A practitioner whose mind is unswerving finds inspiration in the meaning and the teaching and finds joy connected with the teaching. When they're joyful, rapture springs up. When the mind is full of rapture, the body becomes tranquil. When the body is tranquil, they feel bliss. And when they're blissful, the mind becomes immersed in samadhi. Mahanama, you should develop this recollection of virtue while walking, standing, sitting, lying down, while working and while at home with your children. So in that description, you might have noticed one of those positive chain reactions that appears quite often through the discourses. So here, contemplating our own virtues, including these parami, leads naturally to joy, to rapture, to calm, to ease, to samadhi. And these are all highly skillful mental states that allow deep insight to arise. So with that as context, let's come back to the parami again now. Contemplate and celebrate. How have they been strengthened during this retreat? So starting at the beginning with generosity. Now Rebecca gave a whole talk on giving the other night. So for now I'd like to highlight an aspect of it that's not always talked about as often. That's the capacity not only to give, but the capacity to receive generosity too. Maybe it seems like stating the obvious, but coming on this retreat is one of the greatest gifts you could give yourself. There are so many other choices you could have made about how to spend these six weeks or three months of your life. But making the choice to come here and do this intensive practice, hard as it was at times, it's a profound act of generosity to yourself. It's a gift that supports your own well-being, happiness, Freedom. You could think of it as a powerful investment in your future. At the same time, every one of you here was supported by other people to actually come to this retreat. Many different ways, large and small, that others have contributed to you being here. So maybe a neighbor has been watering your plants or checking your mail. Maybe a co-worker took on extra tasks or work duties while you're away. Maybe a friend has been feeding your cat or taking care of your dog. Perhaps your partner or family members have been looking after the children or elders. So outside, many ways that we've been supported to be here. And in here, too, we've had the support of each other the moral support just of our presence showing up day after day. Could you imagine trying to do this totally by yourself? Just one person in this empty hall? I think it would be so much harder even if it did mean that your irritating people weren't around. I'm pretty sure that after this retreat ends, you'll miss them. So just take a moment of silence to take that in a little bit to reflect on this parami of dana. of oh, being here on retreat of strength and generosity the willingness to give and the openness to receive So hopefully you might have some sense of uplift, maybe even celebration, as you take in this power of generosity and giving, being rid of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, loving to let go, committed to charity, loving to give and to share, as the Buddha said to Mahanama. So in many ways, dhāna is the foundation of this whole path to freedom. And the spirit of generosity underlies the second parami, which is sila, or ethical conduct. And this is our fundamental commitment to living a life of non-harming. And again, we've expressed this commitment very powerfully on retreat by regularly taking the five or the eight precepts on the uposita days, And the Buddha spoke often about sila as a gift. He called it a great gift, the gift of fearlessness. Why is that? Because when we live a harmless life, others don't have anything to fear from us. They know we're not going to attack them or hurt them in any way. And we ourselves don't have to fear being found out, punished, blamed, or shamed so just to reflect that back as far as we the teachers know over the course of this retreat none of you deliberately killed any living beings maybe not even an insect nothing got stolen or misappropriated no one was harmed sexually no one spoke falsely or harshly no one got drunk or stoned again as far as we know <laughs> Maybe at times the commitment to noble silence got a bit frayed here and there, but overall, compared to the unfortunate norms in everyday life, Sila here was pretty close to excellent. And again, it can be so easy to take this for granted, thinking, of course, I'm not, to kill, I'm not going to kill living beings or steal or all the rest of it. But tragically, that's not the norm in the world out there as you know, and many of you probably turned on your devices at some point, and you may have started to see the stream of misery that so often comes into our news feeds. And so much of that is caused by humans deliberately causing harm. And at times, the scale of it can feel overwhelming, disempowering. But there is one thing we can do, Seeing the immense suffering caused by violence and cruelty, it can strengthen our resolve to do our best not to add to that misery in any way. So, as we emerge from the relative safety of the retreat container that we've created here, the parami of Sila is our protection. We might not have much control over our outer circumstances. But for sure, we can take refuge, we can take inner refuge in continuing our commitment to non-harming. And again, this is a huge gift to ourselves, a huge gift to others. It's a beautiful way of honoring everything we've received during this retreat. So just a moment or two of quiet to take in, to appreciate. Acknowledge, celebrate this gift of Sila, gift of fearlessness that we've cultivated. Of these parami are interrelated, and sila connects to the third one, which is nekama, usually translated into English as renunciation. And renunciation supports this commitment to non-harming because it strengthens our capacity for restraint, to hold back from trying to gratify our every sense desire and to temper our knee-reactivity to what's unpleasant. So all of you have been working as parami every day of this retreat. And yet, of all the ten parami, I think this one is probably the least popular. Probably because of its the unfortunate translation into English as the term renunciation. So for many people, the word renunciation tends to bring with it old religious ideas of punishment and penance and deprivation and austerity, doing without and so on. But in the context of the Buddha's teachings, it's almost always associated with bliss. Now in English, bliss and renunciation generally don't go together. <laughs> but in the Dharma, almost everywhere, the Buddha speaks about renunciation as bliss. So, how does that make sense? According to Gil Fronstal, the Pali word nekama more literally means going forth into homelessness. In other words, living a life of voluntary simplicity. So, in essence, this parami is inviting us to look at our relationship to wanting. And this is one reason Joseph Goldstein refers to it as non addiction. Non addiction which hints at the freedom that comes when we're able to release craving, clinging, and attachment of all kinds. And again, this is what we've been doing on retreat, giving up our usual sense pleasures, softening our attachment to preferences. And I think all of you at some point have tasted the profound contentment and happiness that at times comes from this voluntary simplicity Even something as seemingly ordinary, mundane, as breathing in and breathing out, taking the next step when walking, watching steam rising from a cup of tea, any one of those moments can become a source of extraordinary contentment and happiness. And we can think of this as the bliss of renunciation. It's a powerful antidote to all of those mainstream messages that we're subject to in everyday life, those messages that insist that in order to be happy, we have to keep buying and consuming and indulging our every sense pleasure. And this fundamental distortion of the truth about what creates happiness, it has a massively harmful impact on our own well-being, on societal well-being, In fact, on the well-being of our entire ecosystem, the whole planet. Consumerism, the craving for comfort and convenience, those drive so much of the damage that we're doing to our precious home, to our precious home and all the beings that we share it with. So if we're serious about our commitment to non-harming, We need to keep developing also this parami of renunciation. When we're back in our everyday lives, just looking carefully, looking kindly at every aspect of how we're living those lives. And wherever possible, changing our behavior so that we can live with voluntary simplicity, live in closer alignment with this commitment to refined, non-harming just a moment to sense in. How has this parami of relinquishment been strengthened, cultivated here? What's it like to touch the bliss of renunciation? So we come now to the parami of panya, or wisdom. And again, we see how all of these paramis strengthen and support each other. There are many, many different facets to wisdom. But in relation to the previous quality of renunciation, wisdom is what helps us to see beyond immediate gratification, to recognize the longer-term benefits of what we're doing not just for ourselves, but our whole society too. One of the challenges of cultivating this parami, though, is again that English words can get in the way. This word wisdom, it can seem or sound lofty and remote and inaccessible, like the cliche of the Swami or the guru or the Zen master sitting alone on the mountaintop. And so it feels like wisdom with a capital W. And again, when we turn towards this parami, the inner tyrant can easily come in and undermine us. You, wise, who are you kidding? So it's important to keep in mind that the Pali word panya literally means to know correctly. And wisdom here is a verb, not a noun. It's not a static thing that we either have or we don't. It's a quality that we can develop, that we can polish. And again, we've been doing it through this whole retreat. All through the retreat, we've been emphasizing direct, embodied understanding. And we've heard so many reports in the practice meetings of how insight is just naturally developing for every one of you. And this is an organic process how this understanding keeps ripening and deepening over time. And again, you might not think of yourself as wise with a capital W, but if you think back to your first ever retreat, or one of those early retreats, I'm guessing you may have had a kind of aha moment of some kind, an insight. And there's that sense of, oh, that's what that teaching means. Now I get it. And then sometime later maybe you go on another retreat, and at some point that insight ripens, the penny drops, as they say, and suddenly you has, oh now I really get it. That understanding I had before, that was nothing. Now it completely makes sense. And then again, sometime later, conditions come together. Oh, this is what they were talking about. This is huge. This changes everything. What I understood before, that wasn't even first base, but now I really, really get it. Wow. And so it goes. Anyone recognize anything like that? (laughs) If yes, then celebrate it, because that's the process of insight, of wisdom, deepening, ripening. So again, just a moment to appreciate, acknowledge, celebrate this ripening of panya, of wisdom. Wisdom is the crucial parami that really make sure all the other parami are developed in the right way. And we can understand its importance when we come to the next parami, which is virya, virya or energy, sometimes also translated as effort. And as Sharon Salzberg writes, when wisdom and energy are balanced, we have the insight to know what needs to be done and the energy to actually do it. And this balance is important. Too much wisdom without energy can lead to complacency, while too much energy without wisdom can lead to burnout, to confusion, even to harm. And so all through this retreat, or at least for part two, all of us teachers here, we've been putting so much emphasis on the need for balanced energy, balanced effort. And I've spoken quite a bit already about relaxed diligence. And I suggested the framework of exploring and enjoying as an antidote to that very common tendency to over-effort and to strive and to get caught up in all those ideas of right and wrong and success and failure and good and bad that so often unconsciously drive us. And in my last talk, I brought in the idea of fallowing, of lying fallow, of taking time to rest, to be still, to do nothing. And I brought that in as an antidote to the pretty compulsive productivity of mainstream society. And we can bring this idea of fallowing into our lives on large and small scales. So on the large scale taking time for longer intensive treats like this one, are powerfully restorative. Just withdrawing from the busyness and the overstimulation and the responsibilities of everyday life gives us time and space to rest, to renew, to replenish, so that when we go back home, we have more capacity to navigate those challenges. And on the smaller scale, taking small moments throughout the whole day to pause, as we've been doing in the relational practice to pause and to relax those micro moments can slow down the build up of busyness and tension pressure and stress and again this is what we've been doing through the whole day on small scale, on big scale so let's take another moment now just to pause, to rest for a moment, to lie fallow so that our energy stays sustained and sustainable. So these few moments of silence that I'm offering through the talk, they're what I call fallow moments. And in that opportunity to pause, it can be interesting to notice what does the heart-mind do when it's invited to rest, even for a moment. If you're anything like me, the attention often quickly skips away in search of more stimulation. And this is because taking time to rest, even for a moment, is pretty foreign to mainstream ways of being, or more accurately, mainstream ways of doing, doing, doing. And so this is where the next parami of patience, or kanti, is so needed. We need patience to balance out that relentless search for instant gratification that feels more and more prevalent in our dominant culture. And because that pressure is so prevalent, it's not surprising that some of those attitudes would creep into our meditation practice. I spoke in a previous talk about the distinction between what I was calling will-driven practice and what I was calling dharma-driven practice. There was someone here kindly suggested dharma-inspired practice is probably a better term. So there's a shift. From taking ownership of the practice, trying to control it and manipulate it and force it to progress at the rate we want it to, it's so counterproductive. And what a relief it is when we are able to shift to that other approach, to Dharma-inspired practice, which is fueled by patience rather than pushiness. But even at the time of the Buddha, it seems that people were pushing for results. The Buddha gave quite a few suttas that try to show that this process is not something we can force or even measure. Instead, it happens naturally due to causes and conditions. So one image the Buddha uses is of a carpenter's axe or abs and how the handle of that abs naturally gets worn away through repeated use. If the carpenter were to look at the handle at the end of each day, they wouldn't necessarily see any changes day to day. But over weeks, months, years, it has a clear effect. So here are the actual words. Just as when a carpenter or carpenter's apprentice sees the marks of their fingers or thumb on the handle of their ads, but they do not know Today, my ad's handle wore down this much. Or yesterday, it wore down that much. Or the day before yesterday, it wore down this much. Still, they know it is worn through when it is worn through. In the same way, when a practitioner dwells devoting themselves to development, they do not know. Today, my afflictive states were worn down this much. Or yesterday they were worn down that much. Or the day before yesterday they were worn down this much. Still, they know they are worn through when they are worn through. This is what we've all been doing here. Patiently letting the practice wear away the afflictive states. So just sensing in. Finding that quality of patience and feeling how much it's been strengthened over these weeks, months, years. There's so much that could be said about all of these parami. And I don't want to test your patience too much tonight. And maybe at this point you're wishing that you were in the Tibetan tradition because they only have six parami, not ten. (laughs) There's just a few more to go, and I will try and keep it brief and try to finish on time. So I'll just touch into the next parami, which is satcha, or truthfulness. Literally, it means real or true. And again, there's a direct connection between patience and truthfulness because according to tradition, the parami of patience has different aspects that are described as gentle perseverance, patience under insult, and acceptance of truth. And I found it interesting that patience... Is, has this quality of acceptance of truth. Because it implies that actually patience, truthfulness is not always so easy to open to. It does take patience because many of the Buddha's understandings can confront some of our more deeply cherished delusions about who we are, how the world is. So there's a famous verse in the Bible that says, And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And in the Buddha's understandings, we have the four noble truths. But there's a contemporary twist on that Bible verse. The truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. (laughs) Sounds like some of you recognize that. And there's something similar in the Dhamma. Some of these teachings can have quite a strong effect. I've seen them referred to, I've seen the Dhamma referred to as having these two aspects at times of consolation and at other times as confrontation. So we can think of practices like the Brahma Vihara, the heart quality practices, as being consoling, as so working on consolation, because they offer us relief in the face of suffering. But there are also phases in our insight insight practice that can be experienced as confronting. They challenge us to see clearly, to let go of clinging, to wake up out of delusion. So this parami of truthfulness is more more than just simply speaking the truth. It's also about knowing the truth, knowing what's true on deeper and deeper levels and then living from that truth. This is how the English monk Ajahn Suchito describes these different dimensions of truthfulness. He says, This parami highlights the capacity to be truthful, a quality that can be understood in two ways. Most obviously, there's truthfulness in terms of intention and behavior, the determination to refrain from telling lies or reporting rumors and gossip. This is such a truthfulness as an aspect of morality. But truthfulness also refers to perception, to the ability to see or know things in an undistorted way. In other words, to insight. So just a moment to sense in how these different dimensions of truthfulness have grown and strengthened here on this retreat? What do you know that's true now that you may not have understood before? So truthfulness encompasses not only speaking the truth, but living in alignment with it. So you might get a sense that it takes quite some courage to do this. And this is where the parami of adatana comes in. So adatana is usually translated as resolve and determination. I'll refer to it as resolve for short. And it takes quite a bit of strength to go against all of the mainstream values and conventional understandings that can get in the way of this path to freedom. The American monk Tanasarubhikhu describes some of the benefits of strengthening resolve. He says, making determinations gives strength to your practice. Otherwise, you just sit and meditate for a while and when the going gets tough, Well, that's enough for today. You don't push your limits. As a result, you don't get a taste of what lies outside the limits of your expectations. As the Buddha said, the purpose of the practice is to see what you've never seen before, to realize what you've never realized before. And many of these things you've never seen or realized lie outside the limits of your imagination. In order to see them, you have to learn how to push yourself more than you might imagine. And every one of us here has been doing just that. It takes real determination, real courage to stay steady with all the ups and downs of retreat practice all the way through to the finish line. Can you take that in? Can you acknowledge just how much resolve it's taken to keep showing up hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month? feeling into that sense of resolve, of determination, of courage that supported us to be here almost at the end of this retreat. So now we come to metta, kindness, friendliness, goodwill, I think this is an easy one, because we've been actively cultivating all of the Brahma Viharas, at least twice a week, and I know many of you have also been exploring metta deeply in the rest of your practice too, so you're all familiar with this one, and I really felt this strongly yesterday, and felt the effects of all of your metta cultivation when we had that first session of Breaking Silence just yesterday afternoon. So as you were sitting together in small groups and mindfully speaking, mindfully listening, to me the quality of metta in the room was so tangible. I just felt the kindness and the care radiating out from each small group. And it felt like it was creating a force field of kindness that seemed to fill the whole room. So, there's not too many more words that need to be said here about just how strongly this Metta has been cultivated. So, just a moment of silence. Feeling into it again now. Just how strongly this Metta has been cultivated, strengthened deepened so this is actually a gift that one of you very generously made and I just thought what a perfectly tangible visible fun symbol of what we've been developing here So that's our celebration of metta. <laughs> and now at last we come to the final parami which is equanimity. And I always think equanimity is last because it's hard one. It requires the development of all the previous qualities coming together to create this profound steadiness, imperturbability, peace. And as I mentioned yesterday morning, equanimity can also be thought of as elasticity. It's that capacity of our heart to stretch and to bend and to flex in the face of life's challenges rather than to break. And it's also a quality that's such a powerful resource for navigating transitions and endings of every kind. And as we come into the closing stages of this retreat, I'm guessing many of you have probably been experiencing quite an equanimity workout over the course of today as you move through all of the different changes in the schedule, the coming in and out of silence, coming into connection, back into solitude, preparing for this retreat to end. So just again now feeling how is this equanimity now how has it grown and strengthened over these weeks and months As you think back over the arc of this retreat, all the ups and downs, and highs and lows, the misery and the bliss, arising 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 and passing, arising and passing, arising and passing. that equanimity supporting you all the way to the very edge of this retreat ending. And all of this parami development can be summed up, the purpose of it can be summed up in one short quote from the Zen tradition. Great is the matter of birth and death quickly passing passing gone awake, awake each one awake don't waste this life just a few last moments of silence together you for your kind and patient attention I'll be back at 9 o'clock for the chanting